This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. Father, as we have your word read and taught, we pray the Spirit would use his sword to teach us and that you'd use your servant Howard to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Our passage today is in Luke um, chapter 15, which on the Church Bibles is on page 747. I'm going to read the first little bit of 15 and then skip on um, to start the parable at verse 11. So 15 verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And then to 11. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later... The younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when, he, and when he spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, but no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat, that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, 
Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Thanks, Francis. Oh, that is loud and echoey. I've never really had my readings read for me, uh, so um, that avoids my wife saying to me, um, do go slowly and don't mutter. So thank you, Francis, for reading so well for us. Um, I thought, um, first of all, let me just say thank you to Grace Church for your hospitality. Uh, it does say when we were, you were homeless, we were homeless and you invited us in. Uh, and you get points for that in the Bible, I think. So uh, thank you, John. Uh, for allowing us to be booted out of the Parabola Art Centre for the Science Festival and finding uh, a space here. So it's great. We, well, I'm sure we'd love to return the favour one time. If you uh, do get pushed around as you do, we're a mobile church like you. So it's great. I've become uh, friends with John. Uh, I am impressed by his uh, integrity, his love of the word, his passion for the gospel. Uh, and although I don't really, uh, I'm not all of those things by any means, I do feel that we've become friends around those things. So John, it, it's, it's super to be here. Okay, so I thought I'd take a familiar uh, story and uh, work that for you. So I want to talk about the cross and the prodigal. Often you hear this story and you don't feel there's very much of Jesus in the story. And least of all, there doesn't seem to be very much about uh, Jesus' cross or Jesus' gospel. It seems to be about a father who's badly treated who then decides to be a bit of a pushover and a nice guy. But I think, no, we need to dig into this uh, story. So the, f- the story starts with there was a man who had two sons. I think that Jesus' hearers would immediately have been interested at this point because the story of Israel is uh, Abraham with two sons and his son Isaac with two sons. And so I think they would have been interested. And it's interesting, the story of Israel is uh, Isaac uh, has two sons and one of the sons, the younger son, uh, steals the birthright, as it were, or cons the, uh, the uh, older son out of the birthright, goes off to a far-off country and then finally comes back and he's reconciled to his father and his older brother. But here is a different story which Jesus seems to take on the same track, but then it seems to go in a different direction, in a surprising direction. I think the other thing to say is that two audiences that Jesus is talking to, not God First and Grace Church, but he's talking to uh, a bunch of tax collectors and sinners, which is the shorthand for everybody, or the shorthand for people who've sinned, which would be everybody, but in those days, people who were definitely moral outsiders. And the other group is the Pharisees and the scribes or the teachers of the law, who were definitely the moral insiders. Although it's interesting, we tend to feel as churchgoers that we're the moral insiders and we tend to feel that people that do things wrong are the moral outsiders. Jesus wants to turn that on the head in this story and he wants to suggest that actually uh, the moral outsiders have got some problems. Yes, obviously, prodigal sons, but also the moral insiders, the religious types, are also separate from their father. The word prodigal... Uh, means recklessly extravagant. And so we're going to look at God's reckless extravagance as well as the reckless extravagance of a younger brother. And as I said, this story reveals the destructive, self-centered nature of the younger brother as he goes off and rejects his father and sins. But it also exposes the older brother's erosive self-righteousness, his kind of religious self-righteousness. But more profoundly of all, it demonstrates the reckless, extravagant and costly love of the father. The story starts with a grasping hand. The 
uh, son, the younger son says, says, give me my share of the estate. Give me my share of the estate. There's a, there's a grasping hand there. The, the, the word estate there, actually, I don't tend to do this very often, but I thought I do need to impress Grace Church a little bit, even though I stole it from a book. Uh, the, the word estate there is actually bios, or uh, livelihood, you could say, or life. Uh, so you could say that the, the younger son says to, the, to his father, give me my share of your livelihood, or even more uh, pronounced, give me my share of your life. Uh, is in one sense, the, the, uh, the younger brother is asking the, the father to tear his life apart so he can grab a part of it. What would have happened is that the older brother would have been due two-thirds of the property and the younger brother would have been due a third. And what the uh, younger uh, son is saying, now you need to turn this property or at least a third of this property with a fire sale quickly into cash so I can take it. He's not interested in his inheritance. He's not interested in taking a third of the land and being responsible and working it. He's just interested in having it turned into cash. What is also happening here, which we perhaps, don't, we perhaps miss because we find our identity in our work or our things that we do, he's rejecting his own identity. He would have been, uh, in, the, in the Middle Eastern culture, uh, a man would have been known as son of, son of Howard, son of John, son of Andy. Uh, he would have been known at, by his, his relationships within the, the, the village community. And also the family identity would have been in the land. They would have owned that land. The land would have been in, uh, uh, in the family for many generations. And the, the identity in land and family was, was there. And so what happens is he's not only saying, give me the cash, which we perhaps in a materialistic culture like ours can understand. He's also saying, I'm done with you. I wish you were dead. I reject my identity as your son. I reject my identity as a son of this land. And I orphan myself. He orphans himself. There's a little picture perhaps, and we can't dig into it, time doesn't allow, of, of the very first sin at the start of the Bible, where Adam is described as a son of God, and he uh, reaches out for what's forbidden. He grasps for what's forbidden, and he orphans himself. He rejects his identity as a son of God made in God's image. He rejects the identity. I will image myself. I will be my own master. I'll be my own God. I reach out for that. And he orphans himself. And what you find is in the, in, in the story that the Adam and Eve are cursed and exiled and sent outside the garden. And so this sin that the, that the younger brother's committing is the sin of all of us. It's a sin to take uh, for ourselves, to be our own God, to, to, to have our own identity in our own way without God. And the re, uh, reaction of the village would be that they would send him out. So it's interesting that uh, in, a, in a village culture, that when this, if, this respect, if this request was made, it wouldn't ever been made in secret. Uh, village culture, I, I don't, not many of us have lived, live in villages, but I guess if you live in a tightly drawn community, everybody knows everybody's business. And it wouldn't have been very long before the son's shocking request would have been known to everybody. And the, the normal response to this would have been for the son, as I've put here, the son to be severely beaten and cursed and sent out of the village. How dare you shame your father in that way? You, you will cut you off from the village, will exile you from the village. He would have been beaten and sent from the village. 
Obviously, perhaps at much pain to the father to lose his son, but the father's honor in an honor and shame culture would have been maintained. It would have been the son that was shamed. But when this argument goes up, when this argument, this, this shocking, dishonoring request happens, the, uh, Jesus' hearers would have been saying, well, surely somebody must mediate for the honor. You've got to understand this honor and shame culture for the honor of the family. The son is doing something disrespectful and dishonoring the father, dishonoring the identity, dishonoring the family, dishonoring the village. Surely there must be a mediator. There must be somebody who can come between father and son, who can, as it were, find some compromise, can save the face of the son, even though his request is disgusting and shocking in their culture, but also, more importantly, to save the face and the honor and glory of the father. The, the, the people listening to Jesus' story Story would have said, there must be a mediator here somewhere. There must be someone who cares about the father and the son. The obvious person to do this is the older son, the older brother, the one who would, you would think would be concerned about the family name, would be concerned about his, his, older, his younger brother, and more importantly, be concerned about the honor of the family and the honor of the father. So when the older brother who would have heard about this does nothing, does not mediate, does not reconcile the two, Jesus' hearers would have been shocked. Why is the older brother so passive? Does he not love his father? Why is the younger brother so disrespectful? Clearly, he doesn't love his father. Why does the father agree to the request Surely he should beat them and exile them from the village. But none of those things happen. The father's love for the son is so great that he does not close the door on him. He does what he asks. He takes a third of his property, sells it in a fire sale, probably doesn't get very much money, turns it into cash at great cost to himself and allows the son to go. He bears the shame. Now, a Middle Eastern patriarch would never have done that. A Middle Eastern father would have never had done that. But Jesus is not drawing his father from a village patriarch. He's drawing his father, as we know if you've been around church at all, from God. He's drawing this fatherhood from God who did not When the angels, it says, sinned, didn't spare the angels, but when Adam and Eve and when humanity turned its back on God, God left a door open. Yes, they were exiled and cursed, but God left a door open. The Father patiently endures a tremendous loss of honor as well as the pain of rejection. So the son goes off to a far-off country. The far-off country is, is, is an image for a country that's not a Jewish place. It's a pagan place. And he experiences the nature of sin. If you go off and sin, this is what will eventually happen to you. You will sit, find that sin promises momentary pleasure, which is what he has. His older brother suggests that he has the pleasure with prostitutes, but we don't know. But certainly he goes off and has pleasure. And while he has money, he seems to have fun. But what happens is eventually sin whispers, if you do this, it will be great. But eventually leaves you empty. 
and he finds himself empty. He takes the bios, the life of his father, that's a gift, as it were, for him, and he takes it, and he finds himself in a famine. He finds himself empty and hungry. Now, it's interesting that if you think that what happens is he decides to say to the father, I will not have you rule over me. I will like to rule over myself. But eventually what happens is he's ended up ruled over by someone else. And that's the false promise of sin. I will not have God rule over me because he is harsh. I will rule over myself and I will have fun. But the reality is you will find yourself ruled over by another master who cares less for you. And that's my story. I'm not going to tell my story today, but that is my story. That rejecting my church upbringing, I wandered off to a far-off country and spent whatever little money I had on all the wrong things. But I did not find myself filled. I find myself emptied. I would not have God as master, but I could not master myself, and eventually I was mastered by sin. The interesting thing is that it says in the story that the son, uh, the the younger son, uh, attached himself to a, a citizen of that country. Um, and Ken Bailey, in his brilliant book, The Cross and the Prodigal, I confess, uh, The Cross and the Prodigal, he says this, that he says, I don't know if you've ever been to a, an airport in a, in a country in the emerging world or the developing world, and what happens is you arrive out uh, with your suitcases and you're all a blur and you don't quite know what's going on. And immediately some uh, young uh, citizen, some young boy at- attaches himself to you and immediately picks up your cases, opens up the door, bows and scrapes, uh, finds you a taxi, puts the things in the boot and opens the door for you and bows down as if you're royalty and then out comes the grateful hand. That's what this is doing. This is the image here that this is what the prodigal son has done. He's found himself some rich guy and he's attached himself to him and it's a bit of a pain and he's trying to earn money. He's basically become a beggar. He's trying to earn money in that horrible kind of way. And so what happens is the citizen thinks, what's the best way to get rid of a really annoying Jewish boy? Let's offer him a job that he definitely wouldn't want. So he offers him a job feeding the pigs. So he finds himself eating with the pigs. It says he desired, desired to fill his belly with the pigs, the pods the pigs were eating. He's desired to fill himself with other things. But now his desire has left him empty and he desires to fill himself with pig swill. Unclean. Empty. Alone. But as in all great stories, there's a turn. The Bible calls that turn repentance. There's some truth and repentance in this story. There's some understanding in this story the younger brother has. But also there's some stuff that he's got quite wrong. I am going to read this little bit here. It says, when he came to his senses, if you're going to become a Christian, if you're a Christian, there has to be a point where you come to your senses and say, I will have Jesus as my master. I will have live in his love. There needs to be that point. He says, he came to his senses and said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to my father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. It's interesting, he comes to his senses and says, I will arise and go back to my father. He doesn't say, I'm just going to pop back to my father. He says, I will arise. There's a sense where he knows his true state. He knows he's dead. 
He knows he's dead. Not only is he dead to the village, but he knows that spiritually he's dead. And so therefore he's saying, I will arise as a sense where light, he wants life to come. I will arise and go back to my father. And he's correct. I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Correct. Incorrect, he says, I'll think I'll find a way to make it right to you. The answer to waywardness is not to become a servant. The answer to being a younger brother who sins and goes away from God, the answer to waywardness is not legalism. It's not to try and be the best servant you can. When I became a Christian, I realized I was a wayward prodigal. But the very first thing they said, and they, didn't, they weren't doing wrong, was, now make sure you read your Bible and pray every day. The implication is that, that you've been wayward, now behave and do the right things, and then maybe God will love you. The answer to waywardness is not legalism, but grace. You are no longer worthy to be called his son, but he will accept you at his cost. The son does not understand the nature of the father's love. The father does not want servants. It says in Galatians, he wants sons. Salvation for sinful younger brothers is not found in becoming self-righteous older brothers. Perhaps the challenge, and Tim Keller says this in his book, The Prodigal God, perhaps the challenge for us is that we present church where actually the wayward, I'm pointing as if it were the outside this building, the wayward younger brothers outside this building, come inside church buildings and think the way to be a good Christian is to keep the rules. If I say, when I'm playing golf, and I say to some people, I join them and I'm playing, and they say, what do I do? I say, I'm a pastor, and they immediately say, well, we better not swear then. They feel that that actually not swearing or keeping certain moral rules is what it's all about. I always say, do you really think that that I would think that's that's the aim of my job, my life's work, to stop you swearing? I say, feel free to swear as much as you want. There's something deeper going on. Most times, they by this time think we wish he'd not invited him to play with us. <laughs> but that is the fact. He's thinking, I will work for my salvation, but actually salvation is never a result of your works. It's a result of someone else's work. It's a result of Jesus' works. What happens is that he knows that he's going, going to go back, and he feels, I have to have a solution in my hand Because actually, I can't just come with this immeasurable debt. How can I possibly repay it? How can they possibly accept me with this immeasurable debt of sin? And uh, Ken Bailey in his book, The Cross and the Prodigal, says that what would have happened is he would have uh, come to the edge of the village and at the edge of the village, he would have met the young kind of thugs, the young boys the young boys from the community, and they would have met him and they would have found out what the story would be and they would have then got an older, an elder man or one of the elders of the village, possibly his father, to enact what's called a cutting off ceremony and they would have taken a large pot, they would have smashed the pot and they would have spoken over them, Howard Kellett, I would be the prodigal in this case, Howard Kellett, we cut you off From this family and this village, you are dead to us. That's what he would have expected to happen. 
That's what he would have expected to happen. That he knew he was going to face this cutting off ceremony. This, that where he had shamed the village, they, were, they would shame him. Your debt is too great. You are dead to us. The pot smashed. Find another place. But the father, the father is not going to allow the judgment of the village to fall upon his son. We know the story. It says, while he was still a long way off. It's very important that the father greets him while he's a long way off. He's not going to greet him when judgment's already been pronounced. He's not going to greet, greet him when he's already decided to embed himself in a nice church group and try and behave rightly. The father wants to get him when he's far, far away. To make sure that legalism and law and judgment do not have their way. But grace has their way with him. It says, while he was a long way off, the father saw him and was filled. It's almost like moved in the insides, filled with compassion for him. And actually the word is that he raced. That all the translations say he run, but he raced. Now you know this, you've been around in church and you know what I'm going to say. But are you, sure, you still need to feel the impact of what's about to be said. That he raced. 25 year old. If your hands up if you're 25 or older. Yeah, sorry, yes. 56 year old men do not run. But actually in that culture, 25 year older, sorry girls, men do not run. The women could run. The women could run and no one thought how disrespectful. But the 25 year old men and older, the patriarchs. The patriarchs of the village would not run. It was shameful for them to run. They would have had to uh, uh, lift up their gowns and show their legs. It's the equivalent of me stripping down to my undies in front of you. No, no, John says. <laughs> They've already had tears. Well, let's not come. And running out to greet the prodigal. How shameful. How shameful. And it says he raced to him. So he's not just titter-tottering along. He's not just concerned a little for his reputation. The father cares nothing for his reputation and chases after the son. We really must rush as well. Okay. And it says that he, um, he kissed him again and then again and again. Let me read what I put. The father's feet follow his heart. Scorning the shame, he humiliates himself before the village. This is the loving God who becomes flesh to find us, who takes the humility of the road upon himself, who bears our shame. The shame of the father running is now the object of the village rather than the shame of the returning son. He is the loving father who becomes flesh to find us, to bear our shame, to turn aside our judgment. He is cut off, it says in Isaiah, from life. The son would be cut off, but here is the father willing to be cut off from the village, willing to be scorned by the village. No, Jesus himself comes cut off from life to bring us from death to life, to reconcile us to himself. The, father, the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And I don't think it's that he's interrupted by the father. I think he realizes when he sees the father's costly love, it's ridiculous for me to say I'm going to try and pay back this father. The father presses on, doesn't he? The father said to him, quick, bring the robe, best robe. That would have been the father's robe. 
and put in on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast, a wedding feast as it were, and celebrate. For this son of mine is dead, was dead, and is alive. Not again. That shouldn't be there. Is alive. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. You can hear the village saying, like the Pharisees at the beginning of the story, this man receives sinners and eats with them. The son's shame is hidden, clothed in the father's righteousness, the father's own robe. A ring is given. The orphaned son is brought back into the feast and restored to sonship by the father's costly love to the scandal of the village. John, time is going and I will race for you like the father. Now the older son was in the field and he came and drew near to the house. As he heard the music and dancing, he summoned one of the younger boys and demanded to know what these things meant. There's not grace there. He's summoning, come stand here, tell me. And demanded what these things meant. And the the boy said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf. Because he's received him, not with safe and sound. There's a lot more going on there than safe and sound, as he is if he has it. Received him with shalom. He's saying, I've received him with wholeness. All the wholeness of God has been showered on this son. He says, however, he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. He goes alongside him and treats him. And he answered He answered his father, look, all these years I've served you and never disobeyed your command, but you never gave me so much as a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But this son of yours, he's no brother of mine, this son of yours came and and devoured your property with prostitutes and you've killed a fatted calf for him. The father says to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It is fitting to celebrate and be glad for this brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and found. It's Trinity Sunday, so I thought I'd just throw this in. The father says to the son, My son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. This is an echo of a much stronger, much greater father-son relationship that this story wants you to reach for. My son, it's all yours. We know that because actually a third has gone to the prodigal son and the two-thirds left is for the older brother. But it's more than that. We're united together, you and I. Our identities are together, father and son, the land we own, we share in common. But the truth of that is that actually the father can not restore the younger brother without the expense of the son. The older son, the older brother. It's got to be somebody's got to pay. Somebody's got to pay. So when the father says, come in and have the feast and have all these things, it's the son that's got to pay. Yes, the father pays with, his, with shame and running, but the son must pay. And he says, I'm going to forgive him for free. This is grace. The older brother finds the grace infuriating, not amazing. He finds it infuriating. He thinks this is scandalous. This is cheap. How can he get away with it? I've worked all these years for you. I've done all these good things and I've never broken the rules and you never gave me anything. How can you give this guy grace? He's a Pharisee. 
that the younger brother has a Pharisee for an older brother. He's not interested in grace. He's interested in rules. Tim Keller writes this. For the rebellious younger brother, God's prodigal, reckless, extravagant grace was his greatest hope. For the older brother, God's grace was his greatest stumbling block. He will not have messed up, broken, damaged people just wandering into church without keeping the rules and conforming and living right. He will not have it. It's going to cost him his finances and his situation and his reputation and he will not have it. The father goes out to him. Again, we see a picture of the father's costly love. It's inconceivable that a host of a great feast, a wedding as it were, equivalent, would step down from the seat of honor and go to an unwilling guest, even his older son. He goes outside. It's almost as if the, 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 the feet that made him race to the younger brother, those same emotions of love, make him step down and go outside. He shames himself to go outside to the unwilling older brother. All the village knows that older brother's completely ticked off. All the village knows he's completely frustrated. All the village knows that he will not let the younger brother have a share again of his estate. And he refuses to come in, but the the father goes out and begs with him. Begs with him. He gets a lecture, doesn't he? He gets a lecture. You owe me and you never gave me. The son, what we find is that the older brother is further away from the father than the younger brother. The younger brother's come to his senses and says, I will arise and go back to my father. I've been distant from you. I've rejected your love. I've I've walked as if it's all about me. But the older brother has not come to his senses. He still thinks it's about him. And the story ends with the older brother still outside. Jesus is asking the crowd, will you come in and feast with me? Earlier in the gospel, he's talked about this great end time banquet, this feast at the end of the world where those will come and sup with him. And Jesus is making it clear and says, the only ones who can come into that banquet are the very ones you're shocked that I'm eating with, those who acknowledge their sin and say, I need a saviour. Tim Keller brilliantly leaves us in his book saying, the story yearns for a true older brother. If you've ever read Tim Keller, he likes to do that true and better thing. And um, he says, there must be a, a true older brother. There must be a real older brother who could make this story right. Yes, the younger brother has gone and sinned, but there must be a true and better older brother who would make it right. There must be a true and older brother who shares our flesh and lives in his father's love to mediate on our behalf. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 2, for there is one God and one mediator, one older brother equipped Between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He's the one 
who should have mediated. But yet we cry out for surely there must be an older brother who would do that for us. And Jesus is saying, it's me. There must be an older brother who's willing to bear our shame and judgment. There must be an older brother. Because the father's heart is that that the younger brother would not suffer judgment. And he'd take the shame upon himself. But a a true older brother would say to his father, let me take the judgment upon myself. Let me take the shame upon myself. Let me be stripped naked and crucified and mocked and spat upon and cut off from my people that my younger brother, you and me, could come in to the Father's feast. There must be a true and better older brother who shares his inheritance with us. The father says to the son, all that I have is yours. Imagine in heaven if God had said, let us go and save them, and the son had closed his hands and said, they will not have anything of mine. Not a penny will I share with them. No love, no grace, no taste of my spirit will I ever give them. It's inconceivable because it's not the gospel. Because in the gospel, the older brother says to his father, I will go and walk the dusty, humiliating, shabby road of shame and die upon the cross so that all that I have will be yours. Paul says it this, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonships and we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself speaks to our spirit that we are God's sons. It does say children in other versions, but in this, I think I'm justified in re-putting it back as sons. It's talking about those who will inherit the whole estate. If now, now if we are sons, then we are heirs, heirs with God the Father and co-heirs with Christ, our true and better older brother. No longer orphans, no longer exiled, no longer under judgment, but reconciled, restored, loved. I will not leave you orphaned. I will come to you. My Father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. We stand here as two churches, yes. But we stand here in two camps. We stand as those who've entered the feast, acknowledged our sin, Acknowledged our self-justification. Acknowledged our waywardness. Or those that stand outside. We can stand outside because of our waywardness. We can stand outside because of our religious self-righteousness. And in this passage, the Father's feet follow the Father's heart. 
he runs to us. He puts his arm around us and entreats us once again. My son, will you come in and feast with me? Amen. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.